we need to manage the unavoidable and avoid the unmanageable. But those need to be portrayed in a way that makes sense to people, that's vivid, that's resonant. Ignoring climate change as it's happening and ignoring where it's going will mean that we're constantly unprepared for things we actually could prepare for. And so this idea of having a form of preparedness in response to something that is a source of fear is way better emotionally than just having anxiety that makes you feel terrible and want to doom scroll. Welcome to Insert Human. I'm Chris Colbert. As the former managing director of the Harvard Innovation Lab, I realized many things. And one of the things I realized is that the pace of technology-driven change is faster, far faster, than most organizations and most people's ability to change. That gap equals risk, vulnerability, and eventually long-term viability. And it's a particularly troubling gap in the three sectors that underpin modern society, banking, education, and healthcare. It's the biggest existential threat they have, and by extension, we have. Closing the gap requires transformation, and transformation requires a much better understanding of ourselves, because at the end of the day, all transformation is human transformation. That's why I created Insert Human, a weekly conversation with brilliant people about better understanding us, and in doing so, shrinking the gap and increasing the chances of a better outcome for all. Before we dive in today's episode, an offer to all the listeners who are leading some sort of transformation effort. I've learned that the key to a successful transformation, organizations big or small, begins with adopting seven critical habits. And while most of the leaders I've met have nailed some, rarely have I seen any honed to an innate, really effective level. To find out how you're doing with the seven habits, you can get my guide, The Seven Habits of Highly Transformative Leaders at chriscolbert.com. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening to the world. Thank you for listening to another episode of Insert Human. And I'm pretty confident this is going to be a pretty great episode. With me today is a friend of mine named Dr. Spencer Glendon. And his bio reads that he's a generalist with formal degrees in industrial engineering and economics and extensive training and experience in finance, history, and languages. My version of that is that Spencer is the archetypal polymath. He is a human being that has gleaned so much knowledge and so much wisdom about the way the world works. And he's now applying that to the topic of topics, climate change, and what we as humans can do about it. More recently, Spencer worked at a a big investment firm here in Boston for a number of years, but more recently, he started collaborating with an organization called Woodwell Climate, which I'm going to ask him about in a second. And then in 2020, he founded a nonprofit organization called Probable Futures, whose aim is to change how we think about, how we talk about, and how we plan for the future of our society and the planet, which we need to be doing, people. So Spencer, thank you for joining me on the show, and I'd love just to start uh, with a little bit of background on on Woodwell and what it's doing and probable futures and how you came to start the organization and, and how it's unfolding for you. Sure. First of all, nice to be with you, Chris. Thanks for inviting me. And I'm happy to start with Woodwell. Woodwell is actually a great place to start. Woodwell is a person. George Woodwell was a scientist, is a scientist who started work in the 60s, I believe. But by the 80s, he was an expert in how the atmosphere functioned, in particular, how the atmosphere related to the planet. And he was among people who were invited to testify in Congress by the Bush administration, the first Bush administration, which is very concerned about climate change. And George Woodwell gave testimony that is publicly available. If you Google George Woodwell congressional testimony, you'll be able to find it probably. And he gave testimony saying, this is the deal. We're at this level of concentration of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. Every bit more we add will increase the heat trapping properties of the atmosphere. And so here's what's going to happen. We're going to have more severe storms. We're going to have record high hot days. It's going to cool down less. He gave this list. This is 1960? No, this is in the early 1980s. In 1980, okay. Early 1980s. So in the 60s, he was working on other things, but he came around to this understanding. Okay, the whole climate is connected and we can foresee basically all of the consequences. Dry places will get drier. Wet places will get will be subject to deluges. Nights will cool down less. You'll have more record hot nights than hot days. 
sea level rise. Litany. Right. Yeah, yeah. He gave this whole litany of things that would happen and we have the power to stop it. And if you gave George's testimony now verbatim, it would still be current. Wow. And George started this organization, uh, which he named the Woods Hole Research Center, which is down in a part of Cape Cod next to a famous oceanographic institute, the Woods Hole Oceanographic Institute. And he wanted to have a climate science organization that would employ scientists towards understanding the problem in a useful, functional way. We will address problems. It would be there to serve people, to help governments, to help local communities, to help other people deal with climate change. Well, this was in the mid 80s. Nobody came knocking on the door. Nobody saw the need to really ask for this help. Now, to George's credit and to lots of other people's credit, they kept the Woods Hole Research Center going by getting grants and by attracting great scientists. And it became a place where great scientists wanted to work mm. and do good work. But it wasn't really that attached to other organizations around the world because those other organizations weren't asking for it. Nobody knew they needed this help or didn't acknowledge they needed this help. So they persevered and did good science about the Arctic, about the tropics. Their scientists uh, are mostly, were mostly scientists who were focused on terrestrial things, soil, forests, the tropics, rivers, the Arctic, tundra all the components, all the pieces that give us our stable climate, they were understanding and then understanding what would the changes in the atmosphere do to these, these different, eco, these different bios, biomes and different ecosystems. Mm -hmm. So in 2012, I had an unusual job in finance. I was given free reign to really choose my own topics to work on. And I decided to start working on climate change because it had some of the attributes of topics that I had had a lot of success with and that interested me. And there are topics that I think are, you know, I know are resonant with you, which was I was interested in topics that everybody kind of knew about, but nobody actually worked on. And I had actually developed a taxonomy of those, an understanding of why that's true, which is that the world is made up of specialists in the modern age. Mm -hmm. And specialization has expanded human knowledge in many ways. But at the same time, it has meant that specialists assume someone else is working on everything else. So the rise of this idea, someone else actually was something I began thinking about at this time. Like who does this? Because I was in a finance company that ostensibly covered the world, covered every industry, and nobody talked about climate change. It might rarely, rarely come up in a discussion about oil or something, but very, very rarely. And there was no organized thinking about it. So I said, okay, this might be something I can deal with. I can try, I can handle. So I just went back and started reading. This is 2012. I just started reading articles from the seventies and eighties by people like George Woodwell and James Hansen. And I was astonished. I was like, these guys were right. These mm -hmm. men and women who did this science back then, it's now you know, 35 years later and everything they said has come to pass. And I realized that the models they had been using, some of which are very statistical models, but others which are just sort of pretty simple models that understand, like if you wear a white shirt outside, you reflect a lot of light, you don't get as hot in the sun. If you wear a dark shirt, you absorb more sun. I mean, that's the kind of basic physics that governs a lot of this. So these were good models that had been right for the right reasons for a long time. And I worked in an industry where people use crappy models all the time. And if your model is right 60% of the time in finance, you can be fabulously wealthy. Mm -hmm. And so I became obsessed with these, what I called unused models mm -hmm. and what they could tell us because all of the talk I heard about climate change, I was a, like a reasonably aware person, but I quickly discovered I, I did not know lots of these things. And so I started reaching out directly to scientists uh, at different places. And one of the things I did was actually reach out to the Woods Hole Research Center. I heard about it in my research. And so I reached out and some people from there, including a woman, Allison Smart, who was the head of development and strat vice president of strategy there, and the then president of Woodwell came to see me and we had a good conversation. And I said, I'd really like to understand what is knowable from climate change, climate science in a useful way, mm -hmm. because mm -hmm. climate science doesn't appear useful to anybody, but it seems like it should be useful. And he said, well, it could be useful, but nobody's really done that. And I came to understand that part of the reason is that modern scientists are really just interested in the edge, the horizon, the next innovation, the next insight. And so things that were already learned by climate science or by any scientist, they aren't really made public. Nobody works on them anymore. Scientists move on. Somebody already wrote that paper, so I'm not going to work on it. 
And so I wound up in a conversation hey, with Spencer, Phil. Can I, just, can I just ask you a quick question on that? Is that to presume that science is disconnected from intent? Yeah, in many ways. I mean, what science is, is I, I probably wouldn't put it exactly that way, but I don't think that's wrong. What I would say is that science is a discipline that has divided the world into small slices. And in those slices, people are trying to advance their field as far as it can go. So if you think about science as a pie chart, everybody's right. in a little slice and they're trying to make their slice bigger to increase the area of the known world. But what happens is there are things within the center of that pie chart that are known by scientists, but not known by other people. And right. nobody works on them anymore. They were discovered. So I'll give you the example that for me was most profound. I went to Stanford to visit a great climate scientist named Ken Caldera. And I asked Ken, so it seems to me that civilization began because the climate stabilized after 10,000 BCE. And he was like, yeah, everybody knows that. I, I said, nobody knows that. It was discovered sometime in the last 20 years when we had, or maybe 30 years now, they had better ice core samples. They were able to say, wow, humans lived from roughly 200,000 BC to 10,000 BC as nomads because the climate was very unstable. Nobody knew why. I mean, when I was, when you were in junior high or I was in junior high, we learned settlement began around 9,500 BC because archeologists have shown us that this thing happened where people started for the first time building permanent structures in parts of Africa and parts of Asia, parts of Europe, parts of Central America, pretty much coincidentally, and nobody knew why. But then they figured out why, but it wasn't well, you know, broadcast that around 10,000 BCE, the climate stabilized, be perfectly stable for the next mm. 12,000 years until very recently. And that stabilization is what enabled civilization. And I said to Ken, well, that seems like it's a really big deal. He said, oh yeah, it's the most important thing. And I said, but nobody knows that thing. And so I started thinking, okay, there's a bunch of knowledge here that needs to get out into the world. And I need to find some partners to work on this with me to find what's already known. I'm not going to make breakthroughs in climate science, but I can help find what's already known that would be useful in the outside world and help get it out. And Woodwell, so I'm now calling it Woodwell, the Woods Hole Research Center was renamed the Woodwell Climate Research Center, so Woodwell Climate, a few years ago in honor of the idea that, hey, actually, we're going to actually build the thing George Woodwell intended, which is an action-oriented climate science organization that will collaborate with people. And I helped with Allison's help, we started building partnerships. I started getting McKinsey involved to start asking questions of climate scientists, getting some people in finance, start asking questions of climate scientists. The climate scientists had never been asked questions by people like this. And the people who asked them had never asked questions like that. And they were all stunned by the results. The McKinsey folks were like, we had no idea. And they even generated a huge new amount of work around it because they're like, we didn't understand like everything we previously thought was important rests on top of the climate. The climate is the condition that makes all that other stuff possible. So if you mess up the climate, you don't get all the other stuff. No, it doesn't end well. <laughs> and so what happened was I helped the scientists find partners and helped partners who didn't know they wanted to be partners with scientists, find the scientists and create this collaborative community. And I realized, okay, there's one more thing, which is there should be some kind of public utility where anybody can go online and just see, this is the deal. This is how things work. This is how the models work. And this is what the future holds. And so we would make a utility, a global utility that would provide essentially the climate variables of heat, precipitation, drought, wildfire for any place on earth going out to three degrees C. And when I asked Phil Duffy, could we do this? He said, yeah, it wouldn't be hard. And I said, has it been done before? He said, no, nobody's done this before. I said, great, let's do it. It's not hard and it's useful. That's ideal. Now, it turned out actually to be somewhat hard and uh, it's a lot of work, but the Woodwell team was happy to collaborate on something that was not necessarily cutting edge. Yeah. It was an application of good ideas into a setting where people might really use them. And, and tell, just comment a little bit on use cases. So who would use it? Why would they use it? I mean, beyond the, you, we all need to understand this much better than we do. And out of that, we need to start doing things differently. Like what's the, what, give me a couple of specific use cases of the, of the platform. So we'll start with some, I'll give you some real world examples. Okay. So we have a, a partnership with an organization that I think very highly of called 10 across 10 across is a organization that 
that is linking communities across the I-10, which happens to go from LA to Jacksonville. And it goes through all of these places along the South that have climate stress. And they've got immigration, they've got heat, they've got storms, they've got deluges, they've got like every aspect of climate stress exists along that throughway. And so they connected us with uh, some people who run power plants in uh, Arizona. So guy who runs a coal, manages a coal-fired power plant in Arizona. So here's how power plants work. Basically every power plant, whether it's nuclear, coal, gas, it boils water. The water generates steam and the steam turns a, a fan, a turbine to generate electricity. Okay. So here's what happens when it goes from like hundred degrees to 120 degrees in Phoenix. First thing that happens is all the people of Phoenix turn up their AC. They want more, right? They need more juice. The AC has to run all the time. Maybe they're installing more AC, but so there's more demand. So the, the utility gets a signal, you know, pump more, pump more electricity, up, burn more coal. But at the same time, the materials in the wires are also affected by the heat. And so the wires start to sag. As wires get warmer, every atom is moving faster. They start to expand. The wires expand, the coating expands, the whole thing gets, starts to sag. You're talking about Which electrical wires. Electrical wires. Okay. Electrical wires from the power plant to your home, the efficiency with which they deliver electricity depends on their temperature. Good to know. All right. <laughs> Never thought of that. Okay. So now you want, you're in Phoenix and you want a hundred more kilowatt hours sent your way. The power plant wants to send you a hundred more kilowatt hours, but it's actually now got to send you like 105 for you to get a hundred because it's lost. Because efficiency is lost. It's right. It's become more inefficient. So right. the power plant has now got to work harder to do the same work. Well, remember what that power plant is doing is boiling water. Well, it needs more water. Well, that water comes from a river. Well, that river is getting drier. Oh, yeah. So now it needs more water. And the other thing is what it needs the water for is to cool as well. So all this stuff, you can't have it just get exponentially hotter. So what happens is there's a boiling of the water, the spinning of the fan, but there's also a cooling process. So you keep the whole thing from overheating. So you're using water to cool the machinery. You're drawing more water from the river. Also, the river is hotter. So the water does less work as coolant. Oh my God. So now you need X percent more water on that day than you would have if it were 20 degrees cooler. And so the engineering of all this was built for a set of standards. And if people say, well, was the climate really stable? Here's how you know the climate was stable. First of all, you would just describe Phoenix, say Phoenix is this way. You would say, this is the range of temperatures you experience in Phoenix. You use the present tense for that because it was assumed that's how it was in the past. That's how it'd be in the future. But also that power plant was built with tolerances. Those cables were chosen with tolerances. Right. Those tolerances are all based on climate. And what happens is you're now going outside the tolerances. Across the system. Across the whole system. My God. Okay. So now you're building a new power plant. You might want to know in advance, how many days above 100 degrees there will be. Right, right. In a way that you didn't pay attention to before. I'll give you a second example. There are places in Colorado, I've been told, that have lawsuits between municipalities and contractors because the contractors installed, they laid down new asphalt and they used the same asphalt as the, was used in the past, but the road degrades very fast. Why? Because it routinely gets much hotter than it did before. And asphalt Melts. can become, yeah, is not actually a solid. And so what happens is these roads that were supposed to last for 30 years fall apart in a couple of years because they were built with the wrong materials. Now, no one would have built a road with the materials they used in Denver, in Arizona. In Arizona, they would use concrete, the white concrete that doesn't really change much with, with heat. Right, right. But so there are all of these ways in which the stability is built into our physical world. And I'll give you one last example, which is storm sewers carry water away from wherever you are. And storm sewers are built to assume a certain intensity of rainfall. Yes. And any amount of rainfall above that level, the storm sewer gets overwhelmed and can't handle it. So you get floods. So that's how you get urban flooding or flash flooding, okay? Is that the rain was outside the planned range. Well, essentially, the storm sewers in every temperate place in the world are now inadequate because warmer air holds more water. So every one degree centigrade warmer that the air gets, it can hold 7% more water. So if air is 10 degrees C warmer 
or 18 degrees Fahrenheit warmer, it can hold 100% more water. That's just physics. There's no arguing about it. There's no wishing it were different. And you know it's true because if you go out, because hot air can hold a lot of water, the humidity in a hot place versus the humidity in a cold place is very different. Mm-hmm. The most torrential rainstorms you know, happen in warm weather. But you take a place like London, which averaged just two inches of rain every month, but every basically every month was the same. Their original storm sewer was built for no more than a quarter inch of rain a day. My God. Because it never rained hard. My God. And so now this city that's built on the, uh, everyone thinks of as rainy, is totally unprepared for hard rain and has this systemic flooding problem because its storm sewers are just inadequate. They were, they were for the past climate and that climate was fine for a long time. I mean, London's yeah. been around a long time, but a warming world means that the ranges have moved, are different. And we built around those ranges, assuming everything would stay the same forever. That, so those are the kinds of applications. Yeah, that makes sense. You know, a quick a quick anecdote. Last uh, summer, Kate and I, we, we go to uh, Rhode Island, coast of Rhode Island for a couple of weeks every summer. And the cottage we rent is at the bottom of a hill. And the hill is about a mile long road, pretty steep decline. And one morning we woke up after a tropical storm, I forget the name, and the entire road, as far as we could see, had collapsed. Yeah. And it, the storm drain just couldn't, handle the volume, which is exactly what you were just right. describing. Yeah. So I want to kick over to probable futures and how you added that to your to-do list, the creation of that organization. Sure. So I think the easiest way to, the most succinct and useful way to wrap that up is that what I discovered in Woodwell is a team of partners who did something very different than an academic institution, which is all of the scientists meet together. So scientists are called principal investigators at a place like that. And all the PIs they all meet. doesn't matter if they do trees or soil or tundra or rivers or atmosphere. They meet together. And that's just not true in almost any other kind of academic institution where they one would be in the forestry department, one would be in biology, one would be in physics, one would be in some other group. But these people collaborate in a way that brings good ideas and also information about how the world fits together. And so I remember sitting in on a, on a PI meeting when there were big fires uh, in California and there had been an article in The Economist that was pretty wrong about it. And there was discussion, should we write a letter back to the editor and explain to them what's really happening? And I said, so what is really happening? And it was this sort of round table discussion people. And then one guy just said, look, it's not a drought. It's just a different climate. And it's just the wrong plants. The wrong plants live there now. Those plants evolved to live in one climate and they don't have that climate anymore. And so all those plants are going to die. And there just isn't enough moisture to support trees. Mm. I was like, okay, that's super clarifying. Like even the idea that drought is by its definition temporary means that there are lots of places we should stop. We should change and check our language to describe Mm. what's happening in the world. Mm. And so what I thought is, okay, this kind of wisdom isn't getting out. There needs to be a translator, a bridge between science and culture. And I looked around and there just wasn't such a bridge. And the woman who uh, I've mentioned a couple of times, Allison, was the sort of head of strategy there. And she had come from museums. She had worked at a whaling museum. She had worked at fine arts museum. She'd worked in musical organizations. Her undergraduate degree is in theater management. Hmm. So she had come to climate science from the arts. And I had come to it from the social sciences, essentially. Mm-hmm. And we both were like, actually, this stuff is pretty easy to understand. You can get it. But nobody is building this bridge between the science and every other part of life. Could we do that? And so we talked about how we might do that. And one of the things I was most obsessed with is that the future is portrayed essentially in one of two ways, which is everything's solved by electric cars and modernist architecture. Somehow there are these boxy buildings where, you know, (laughs) cyborgs and electric cars are around, but somehow it's still lush and everything's fine. I call those people techno-utopians. That's right. So you have a techno-utopian vision. And then the other is you have a Mad Max. And I was like, that's neither of those are helpful. Like one of them is definitely not going to happen. We've left that climate altogether. And the other one is so far off and just not, not useful. Right. But the futures that are ahead of us are like somewhat different. And we need to start talking about them. And I came around this idea of probable futures. We can describe what's likely. We should be talking about this likely space. And one of the terms that I I became very attracted to is this idea of bounded imagination. 
Mm. All right. We have limits. Let's figure out how to live within those limits. But people need to know what the limits are. They need to know like what is super unlikely, what's somewhat likely, what's very likely. They also need to know what is going to happen almost for sure. And then what we can avoid. So one of the turns of phrase is we need to manage the unavoidable and avoid the unmanageable. But those need to be portrayed in a way that makes sense to people, that's vivid, that's resonant. And so we created this organization called Probable Futures built around these ideas that would do two things. One is provide a place where a lay person could get oriented, get a framework for understanding this because it's now becoming part of everyone's life, but they're coming at it from their own slice, their own specialty right. or their own right. specific place. Limited view, yeah. They have not only a limited view in their own lane, as it's now often called, but also they've heard a lot of noise, right? If you're an adult, you've been hearing about climate change in some way for 20 years. And so you have a lot of sort of unstructured preconceptions and you have these biases, which Allison had, I had, everybody has, mm -hmm. but they're there is actually a pretty clarifying framework that can just be helpful to orient yourself around the physical planet. And so there's content there that helps you understand how this whole system works, how the climate works and how we relate to it, why stability was so valuable for creating civilization, what the risks are, some vocabulary about how to talk about risk because the utopians all want to talk about maximization and not risk. And then a utility where you can go on these maps and click around and say, all right, where I live, what's it like? What was it like 30 years ago? What will it be like at one and a half degrees, at two degrees, at three degrees? And three degrees is going to look pretty terrible in most places. And you say, well, okay, that hopefully is motivation to say, all right, that now I understand. Mm -hmm. Like that's still a long ways from Mad Max, mm -hmm. but it's probably unmanageable. Like Phoenix is so hot that that problem, you know, nobody's using a coal-fired power plant, but like the rivers don't come anywhere near. There's not enough snow in the mountains. All the people in Arizona, they're showering and drinking snow because the snow melts over the summer that falls in the mountains. Well, if there's no snow up there, there's no irrigation to get all of that down there. So you say three degrees is not a manageable level. Well, three degrees sounds like a small number if you don't give it context, but these maps allow you to zoom in, click around, move around, see what's happening in the rest of the world and see what can happen. Yeah as a way that could be A, useful to municipalities or communities, but B, help people tell better stories. I mean, one of the things I'm obsessed with is getting people to start telling stories about the future and the futures we're choosing between in a way that don't feel like Mad Max or Gattaca. Yeah. And that's still pretty empty. I mean, if you look on Prestige TV now, there are lots of space shows, but there are no shows set in the near future. And I am trying to help encourage this speculative thinking that's that's useful. Have you read this book? I'm holding up a book called Factfulness. Yeah. I mean, it's helpful on a number of fronts, but one of the first things he points out is what he calls the gap instinct, which is our, our tendency to create polar extremes. It's either going to be utopia or dystopia, and there's no in between. And yeah. that's just our this human bias, and the media sort of promulgates that. I'm just curious, like how you guys, you and Allison and the team at Probable Futures and the other the other people in your your ecosystem have talked about this question of motivation. A while back, I, I heard some research that said when climate was not so prevalent, the crisis was not so prevalent, the majority of humans, the vast majority of humans chose to ignore the topic. And as it's become more prevalent through the course of one disaster after another, many humans' reaction to the disasters is to choose to ignore it because it's so troubling. So like, like, you're like, wait a second, you didn't care when it wasn't in your face. And now that it's in your face, you don't care because it's too much. Like, how do we, how do we navigate balancing the importance of sharing the truth with not shutting people down because they just can't handle it? It's a big problem. And it is the implicit debate happening in politics and the climate community is whether or not is guessing how people be motivated. And what we know thus far is essentially nothing has worked. And that may sound totally dispiriting, which in some ways it is. But at the same time, it just means until now, nothing has worked. So one of the things that we've done is work with psychologists and learned a lot about the kinds of emotions that shut people down, like just really make them not, not want to engage at all. And the, the main one is shame. If you shame somebody, it's basically over. They're not coming to 
to meet you again. They're not coming to whatever it is you're you're organizing, whatever it is, whatever conversation you want to have. It's your relationship is over. And the other one actually is anxiety. That anxiety is unstructured. Anxiety is just a bad feeling. So there's this view that you don't want to scare people in the climate communications community and and generally in among politicians especially sort of left-wing or liberal polit- progressive politicians. You don't want to scare them. You want to promise them that everything's going to be better in the future. But actually, fear is different than anxiety. Fear is a specific, I can name that thing. That's the thing I don't want to have happen. And mm. so distant catastrophes are not something to be feared because you're not part of them. They're not where you are. But specific fears of, oh, I want my children to be able to play outside. I'm afraid they will not be able to play outside. Um, we're involved in a an organization in a, in a neighborhood here in, in Boston that is principally a was built around tennis. So it's a neighborhood organization that educates kids and after school programs, has summer programs. And it was the first club built by black people for black members. And it's called the Sportsman's Tennis mm-hmm. and Enrichment Center. Yeah. And Sportsman's has got this great summer program where kids come and play all summer. And they're building a second building to cover for more courts. You say, why do they need more indoor courts? Well, because actually in Boston now, it's just not safe for kids to be outside all the time, much of the summer. It's too hot. Mm. You put kids on, you know, hot tent on hot concrete asphalt, tennis courts, yeah, yeah, yeah. hot asphalt, it's just not safe. There are too many days when it's 95 degrees and there are too many days when it's a deluge. And so these kids who used to have a summer camp that was mostly outdoors, they're going to have a summer camp that's mostly indoors mm, mm, mm. for their own safety. That's a very specific fear. That's a specific thing to avoid. It's not a polar bear with whom you have no relationship. It is local. It is specific. And we have seen good evidence that making things local and specific is much more clarifying. It needs to be vivid. It needs to be resonant. It needs to be personal. You need to feel it. Yeah. And anxiety isn't like that. Anxiety is this just sense that things will be shitty. And there's nothing you can do about it. So a lot of this is about moving to help people have a better language about specifically, this is the thing that is likely. This is the thing that is uncertain. This is the thing that we counted on and we may lose. Let's figure out both how to you know, make that losing that less likely or less tremendous. But also we got to start preparing, if nothing else, ignoring climate change as it's happening and ignoring where it's going will mean that we're constantly unprepared for things we actually could prepare for. Mm-hmm. And so this idea of having a, a form of preparedness in response to something that is a source of fear is way better emotionally than just having anxiety that makes you feel terrible and want to doom scroll. Right. right. And that also does another thing, which I think is important, which is that you wind up analogizing climate change to everything else. It just gets thrown into the stew of terrible things. And climate change is more, at least conceptually, be kept more organized, I think, than some of those things, because we play a limited role in it. You have systems like democracy where it's all about people. People are really hard to understand, but nature has given us a lot of clues. Like this is how it works. Right. You know, all the oxygen you enjoy breathing, it was all created by plants. You know what? All the food you eat, whether it was meat or not meat, it started as a plant. Like you depend on plants, no plants, no you. Like right. that's a simple clarifying statement. Right. The other is there's a combination of heat and humidity where no human body can survive. And starting in 9,500 or 10,000 BCE, that temperature was never reached anywhere on the planet. So humans could go everywhere. And now we're starting to have places that are just getting close to being too hot for anybody to- Uninhabitable, yeah. It's uninhabitable. So there was no part of the earth that was uninhabitable because we're big mammals and we need to offload heat. And so, okay, the idea that it'll just be Mad Max is sort of abstract, but the idea that here are people who are living close to those levels- We'll talk about children again. There are a lot of places where summer vacation will go away. It'll become winter vacation mm. because summer vacation will be too, 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 too traumatic to play outside. Yeah. 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 And so those kinds of things can be clarifying. And what they do is they reduce the scale of the problem to your community. They make it be local and personal, and it's not all existential. Spencer, one, one of the things we were talking about earlier before we hit the record button and your newsletter, the Probable Futures uh, Summer Solstice version of the newsletter, which I read this morning and I really, really love, and I encourage everybody to sign up for it on the Probable Futures website. But one of the things you you made a very clear 
not even argument for depiction of the reality that everything is connected, you know, and, and the specific thing you were talking about is what we eat and how it impacts our health. And at a macro level, what we grow, the industrial agricultural complex, if you will, and how it impacts the health of the planet. The big takeaway for me, which is really resonant is, is everything is connected. Everything is connected. And mother nature is the prototype of that truth. And yet I think for most humans, we either operate or want to believe or want to deny that every, we want, we want to believe everything's discrete, that our life is our life. Our job is our love, our, our food, you know, I can eat what I want to eat. And how do we help more people? Does that local argument work in terms of showing that connectivity or, or do you just sort of rely on lots of lots of local education, motivate people based on personal interest? and not worry so much about what I'll call systems thinking around solving the problem. Does that make sense as a question? Yeah, I think there are a couple of ideas there that I'll, I'd like to get into. One is there's a suite of ideas that are broadly linked to the enlightenment essentially in Europe, which have to do with the sort of supremacy of men's intellect, the idea that we can understand things. Right. And I, I love much of what came out of the enlightenment, these ideas that we could we could grasp our world, that nature would provide truths. I know you read this great book, uh, The Invention of Nature. I love this book. I lo love it. The in Invention of Amazing. Nature about Alexander von Humboldt, who, who, when he starts his work in the, 1800, in the 1700s, actually, he's a generalist. And by the time of his death, science has been divided into specialties. But he documents how the world is connected, how these systems work. And so... What happened, I view that time as very special because it was this notion of seeing how things were connected. But the aftermath of that was then breaking down into disciplines. Right. And so at the beginning, he's trying to write Cosmos by himself. And in the end, he becomes an editor. He's an editor of all the subspecialties. There's the geologists and the biologists. And, and, and what's interesting about that is that the way the book is written, you you can see it yourself. There's You're looking at this mountain, Chimborazo, where he does a lot of this work, where you can see yeah, as altitude goes up, it cools, and the relationship between the species at different levels, and the relationship between the rain and the and the lake below, and and so this idea of connectedness may seem overwhelming, like the world is too complex. But I also think it's fulfilling. It's mm. this idea that we are participants in the world, we are active in the world, we are connected to the world, mm -hmm. and this world is marvelous, as opposed to this anthropocentric view that the world is there to serve us. Mm -hmm. So Wendell Berry has this way of describing it, which is that there are two ways of approaching the world. One is exploitation and one is nurture. Mm. And once you become exploitative of nature, it gets pretty easy to become exploitative of other people too, psychologically. And so there's this way in which sort of imposing violence on the physical planet turns out to be pretty uh, the gateway drug to imposing violence on other people. And so this mm -hmm. idea of nurture turns out to be relevant for the basics of farming. Do you try to keep everything on a farm on the farm so that manure is not waste, it's fertilizer, so that you know the chaff from the plants is, is feed, so that you have this cycle of disease and health and death and life, or do you treat everything on the farm as waste and you just ship it down the river? And so I think there's a way in which being part of a system, and that system can be very local, but also is, is global in lots of ways, can be a, I think, invigorating. I feel connected to all these mm -hmm. things. Mm -hmm. Not necessarily I feel responsible for all of them, but I am participating with them. And then the second, uh, the book I recommend about this the most is a book by the author Amitav Ghosh, and it's called The Great Derangement. And The Great Derangement, he's a novelist. And he says, how did novels just come to be only about people? Novels used to be about nature and about people interacting. Mm. He says, Mary Shelley didn't write Frankenstein to be science fiction. It was just fiction. But prestige fiction and the stories told in movies are just so human-centric. And expanding that lens to give the wider world context for how we behave, from the idea that our personalities are at least somewhat dependent on what we ate, we are what we eat, we think what we eat in many ways, but also this idea that we're not above or responsible for, we are participants in it. That was pushed aside by a very specific mindset. Just a quick comment there, which, which may have come from one of your prior newsletters, or I read it somewhere else, but the same applies to songwriting that 50 years ago, a hundred years ago, songs were written 
not solely about humans. They were written about nature. They were written, maybe you told, or maybe you told me that at a cocktail party. I can't remember, but it's, it's happened throughout society, right? Yes. Even, even in education, I think it's compartmentalized to the point where we sort of lost the point. Yeah. And I think social media has accentuated this because it's your face over and over again. It's not your physical body. And I, I've had the, the mixed fortune to be sick a lot of my life. My immune system is pretty lousy. And so I've had a liver transplant. I've had a bunch of gastrointestinal problems. And one of the things that's taught me is like my personality is contingent on my body. My body isn't just some kind of, you know, little chariot that carries around my head. And my body is also not just a, a machine into which things get put. And so being more, but I think of the sort of techno utopians as thinking about the sort of, well, even the idea of the singularity that you'll take your consciousness up into the, you know, into some sort of web consciousness without a physical body is a fantasy. And it's not a fantasy I would want to live in either. The, the physical body, the physical world has been, I think, devalued so much. In fact, one of the real powerful moments in, for me in this work is that for many years, Lisa and I didn't have a car. And um, so I'd occasionally get a ride from somebody. And I, I got a ride from somebody. This is back when I worked in finance. I got in the car and it was a, it was a nice BMW. And I sat in the passenger seat in the front. And there before me was a thermostat. And I could choose my own climate from my side of the car. <laughs> and I thought, oh my God, like, the physics of that are so interesting. Like what that means, if I set that at 68, is that I'm dictating that the atoms around me move at a certain frequency. Because that's what temperature is, is the, is the vibration of the atom, the movement, the speed of the atoms. Like this car ostensibly gives me control over just the atoms on my side of the car. And I'll carry that forward to one of the things I care a lot about, you've heard me talk about a couple of times, is recreation, is play. I think the most depressing building to me in the world is the baseball stadium that the Texas Rangers play in. I don't know it. So the Texas Rangers play in a stadium that I'm not, I'm probably not going to get the name exactly right, but it's sponsored as all stadiums are. And I think it is called the globe life field. Okay. So the, I know globe and life are in the, and I assume it's an insurance company or something, but it's called the globe life stadium. And the globe life stadium was built recently because attendance at Texas Rangers games was getting worse in part because it was just too hot. But the problem of it being too hot wasn't seen as a problem that should be addressed directly. What you should do is build a new stadium that has a roof and air conditioning so every game can be played at 72 degrees. Wow. And that notion of separating yourself from the place you live in order to play baseball, an outdoor sport, right. but the roof is translucent, so it still feels like a sunny day. <laughs> Perfect. It's essentially a kind of bright overcast, 72 degrees. And this idea of just always being indoors at a bright overcast 72 degrees, I think is a good metaphor for the world that we're building around us without thinking about the physical outside world that we depend on. Yeah. And so I agree with Gosha's ideas that you like pay more attention to the physical world around you. It will almost certainly reward you for doing so by paying attention to it. Yeah. Let me end with this, which is Jaron Lanier, who's a technologist who was the maybe the inventor of virtual reality, I guess, but a really profound thinker about what it means to be human and how media affect it. He loves virtual reality and he loves the physical world. And he says, if you really want to blow someone's mind, have them put on a virtual reality headset and, and operate in a space. And one of the most amazing things about humans is that they can accept a world that's pretty janky looking, like they will get immersed in it and they'll think it's amazing. He says, a minute, the minute after they take it out and they come out and they're like, that's so amazing. Hand them a flower, an actual flower. And their head just explodes. They're like, oh my God, this is the most <laughs> amazing thing. Wait, no psychedelics are involved no in this? No psychedelics are involved in all. But the point is, virtual reality is always going to be a, simil a, a weak simulacrum of the real world. Yeah, 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 yeah. But in coming out of that makes you appreciate like the intricacy of one leaf, of one right. flower, of one thing paying better attention, like the wonder of the physical world that we breeze over, that we don't look at. And I, I myself was guilty of this. I worked for more than 20 years on trying to understand prosperity and catastrophe, working in many countries on many thorny problems, and never really thought about the physical world's role in it. Yeah. And so I do think there's something, you know, that this is a hard time. It will continue to be a hard time. 10 years from now will not be an easy time. It will not get easier to deal with climate change. But 
being aware in ways that I know you condone, the ways you encourage, can make the world much more wondrous, much more interesting. Yeah. And the thing we come back to, you've asked about, you know, our motto is, or our goal is to increase the chances that the future is good. What we mean by that is we are going to have to give up on some things. Some things are not going to come with us. The future is going to be harder or more difficult in some ways, but we could live better in that world. The idea that this is the most awesome super way to live is, I think, should be abundantly obviously false. We could live other ways. And so living better in a somewhat damaged planet is a really good option. It's so much better than Mars. Like it is so much better than right. other places. Right. And so the, the metaphor I use is that we lived in a house that was perfect for us. No room was too hot and it didn't really require any maintenance. And now that house is damaged because of our recklessness. But the level of warming is such and the level of damage is such that we can do a lot of work and just from here on maintain it as a great place. But the more damage we do to it, the more we're going to have to just all be working on its maintenance to the point where eventually we'll go back to our earliest ancestors who were like, yeah, nomadism, you got to be ready to move. Yeah. And we're yeah. a long ways from that, but we're setting the our trajectory for it every day. We it's choose how much more likely yeah. that is. And so thinking about it as a great house to live in that we need to do some maintenance on, I don't think should be overwhelming. And it's not the same as saying, you know, it's not a problem where we're fucked. Right, right, right. So one last question, I, I'll let you, let you go. And it relates to both the work you're doing at Probable Futures, but also more sort of macro. How are the governing entities of planet Earth, if they were listening to the show, and maybe some of them will, like how are they responding to what you've articulated as a path forward? Like, are they paralyzed? Are you confident in the work that's happening? Like, and then the, the sub question to that is what can I or any of the listeners do to participate in, call it the movement, call it the effort? So there's like two questions in one there. I'll answer them in reverse order. I think you used exactly the right verb, which is participate. There are all kinds of things to participate in, and we've been discouraged from being participants. We've been encouraged to be consumers and workers and when on leisure to be on vacation, to literally vacate. And we need to regain this idea of, of being active, of participating in our lives. And so the, there's a very interesting study done in Scandinavia of, I learned this from a great professor at the Harvard Ed School. He said these two groups of kids were taught climate science in maybe fifth or sixth grade, the basics of climate change. And one set of kids was just taught the science as science. And the other group was taught the same class of science, but it was paired with civics. And the first group came out of it depressed and saying they didn't want to have children and saying they wanted to just like the future was hopeless. And the second group with the civics, like, okay, let's do something. They were motivated because that's a system they can, they, they were taught, how does the system they live in work? They were taught, how do your government work? How does your city council work? How does Right. They had an avenue. They had, they had a path forward. They had, they had a, a path yeah. forward, right? And they had a sense of, all right, my reality is a function of the climate and a function of these social systems I'm a part of. And we built Probable Futures on purpose as a discipline agnostic platform, because what we're finding is everybody has something they can do in their domain. It's different. Sometimes that domain is just your household, but sometimes it's your friends. Sometimes it's your neighborhood. It's your church. But in all of those places, like, let's say it's your church. There's probably at some point in time going to be new building drive. They're going to do some repairs. Well, are those repairs going to be climate aware? Also, there are going to be decisions about, you know, the school, the, the lunch served after the service. Like there are all these things where introducing it into your awareness, mm -hmm. is just a better way of being alive, a better way of being mm -hmm. a participant. Mm -hmm. And so how does that, and then you have at a, one of the things that we've come up with and I really give a lot of credit to the team at McKinsey about this, which is the way they say it now is climate should be thought of like information and money. Mm -hmm. It's everywhere. It's involved in every decision you make probably in, in modern mm -hmm. life. It may not be the governing force, but it's relevant. And if you ignore it, you're negligent. Mm -hmm. And this idea that it's part of, it's a lens through which you see the world. It's a lens that you can feel physically. It's a lens that's intuitive. If you bring that awareness with you, in a way that part is participatory, whether it's at work, whether it's in your community, whether it's in something new, whether it's you know how you vote or whether you vote or how you get active, that form of participation, we're not going to do it without that. So then you asked about the, and, and I think that what we've seen, so we've done, we do a bunch of training now and we're helping other people train trainers. We did a really fun call with 
fun for me and I think fun for them, but uh, with TV meteorologists, TV meteorologists tell you the weather for the next 10 days and they tell you when it's a record and they tell you if it's a drought, but none of them were trained in climate science. <laughs> they were trained assuming a stable climate and now they're getting asked climate questions. Their beat has changed. It's like the power plant in Arizona. The, the standards right, are, right. are completely different, right? And so they're like, we need a way to help our viewers understand what it is that's happening here. And we don't have a vocabulary for it. And so for them to acknowledge that was true, for one of them to convene a group, say, hey, let's get together and talk about this. And then let's invite in, invite in some experts. Yeah. This meteorologist in Des Moines initiated this. So he reached out to Woodwell and said, hey, can, can we have some tutorials for TV meteorologists around the country? There's a guy from Green Bay, another person from Texas, another person from Baltimore who are like, this is great. I can use these maps to show how these kinds of days have grown more likely. Like the big heat wave in Portland, Oregon, we write about it on the site. We looked, you know, people were like, it's unbelievable. Well, actually, given how warm the atmosphere already is, it was predictable. Right. It was unlikely, but it was not outside the range of possible. And so the last point was about the leaders. And I think the leaders have generally been pretty terrible. And I think there are two reasons for that. The first is that there's the strongest prediction, the strongest indicator that someone will be resistant to climate change is a, a very human-centric belief. And people want to protect their identity, their, their sense of self. And so libertarians have, find it almost impossible to accept climate change as reality because it's a problem of the commons. And to be a libertarian, you have to believe that everything can be solved individually by markets. Right. You, you have to have governance to deal with climate change. And to people who believe themselves to have decided they are libertarians, climate change is anathema. It, it really, it, it makes it impossible to hold that because libertarianism essentially only exists in a stable climate. It's only viable in a stable climate. So they reject it outright. And the second group is nationalists because it's clearly a cooperative problem. And if your view is, I don't care what happens to any other place in the world except for my place. Right. And even within my part, the people that look like me and everybody else, I don't care about, right? As long as I only care about a small group and my identity is that this is the only group that matters. And in fact, that collaborating with anybody else is to admit that they have value, admit that they have merit then you can't accept, then this problem is overwhelming because your worldview has no solution for it. And so well, those happen to be very, very powerful views in current politics. Mm, globally, not just US. Yeah. That's right. The first being libertarianism, this idea of individual agency, the idea that markets will solve everything is one that many people are trying to you know, finesse into making this work. And the other one is that it, all that matters is where you are. Right. And it's why we made these maps global if you look at a map of climate change in the US, you can come to a conclusion that like, this is kind of like a lot of people are gonna have to move, but it's kind of manageable. But that's only if you just leave Mexico off, right. Central America off. Right. You just assume all those people stay there and suffer on their own. And the same is true around the Mediterranean. And so I think that we need leaders who have a global view and they need to be in a culture and promote a culture that allows for that connected global view. And I do think young people are much more likely to have that view, are much more open to that view, but it's a hard thing to argue for. And so a lot of what I spend my time doing is trying to convince leaders of big organizations to advocate for regulation. And they think, oh my God, I've never, you know, my, I always just want to fight against regulation. I said, no, this is regulation that will save the system that you flourish in. Right. And so one of the biggest hedge funds in the world reached out to me and said, we really support your work. And I asked, well, why is that? And they said, because we can see that the more climate change there is, the less capitalism there will be. Because in a crisis, you need government. In a crisis, the government expands. In a crisis, you realize that the free market isn't actually that free and it isn't fair. And so this idea that people have individual liberty is contingent on forms of security and safety and, and assumptions. And the more we lose those, the way we like to live, those are the, the, the hedge fund people were like, that'll go away. And they have the, I give them credit for having the clarity of thought to foresee that. But most people who are running enterprises now, they can't imagine that. Nothing bad has happened in their life. There's been one bout, COVID is the worst thing that happened in their lives. And they didn't probably get it or they were treated. And so you have this limit of imagination 
And so hopefully the limits of imagination are expanding. Some of the connections are expanding at the grassroots and we need some amount of cultural change, which is, you know, part of why I agreed to be on your show. What I'm hearing is it's really the local level individual activism, however you choose to participate is critical. It's not going to come top down probably. And then the second, I love that construct of the McKinsey construct of, of information, money, and climate. And when you said that, my first thought was climate is an asset and we can either leverage the asset, grow the asset, value the asset, or we can, we can destroy the asset. <laughs> and, and, and I think that applies at a local level at a re, you know, like at every level. It is wealth. It is wealth. And what can happen is we'll just get poorer in a way that we will sense some of the time it won't be counted by dollars, but we'll be, you know, think about that Texas baseball stadium. They lost nice days. They're just no more nice days. Right. So now they had to build something artificial to create pleasantness. That was expensive. There was nowhere on the balance sheet was the loss of nice days. Nobody marked it in any accounting, but it got more expensive. Every building, like nature gave us so much for free. Oh yeah. And we just took and wasted. And if we think about it instead as an endowment to be maintained, to be grown, that mindset is a much healthier one that applies more broadly. And so, yes, this idea of wealth, I think is a powerful one. Yeah. So last, last little question, but big question, how can the audience connect with Probable Futures? How can they support your work? How, how can they learn more? So probablefutures.org Probable is the website. Probable Futures is a, a nonprofit initiative. Um, our core team is a small group of people. We've benefited from collaborating with great companies that did technology, design, other things. At probablefutures.org, you can come visit. You can give us feedback. As you said, I write a newsletter on every solstice and equinox that we send out to our mailing list. Uh, we have no, there is no nothing commercial about Probable Futures. So there are no cookies. There's no, we're not spying on anybody. We're just trying to make a publicly available tool. It's not quite finished. So we've got the heat volume and the precipitation volume up. Land will come next in the fall. And then the core site will be built. What we're doing now is connecting with people who are willing to be and eager to be early stage users. So if you're teaching a class and want to collaborate on how to make curricular work, we're interested in that. If you have an, an industry or a company that's trying to figure out how to be engaged in this, and think this data can be helpful to you in some way. So we're talking with people who do some supply chain work, some people who do sort of city planning work, a bunch of teachers, and trying to find ways to help us build that bridge, the bridge between science and culture. Wherever your culture is, we're just trying to build like the first half of the bridge so you can get there. So it's tractable enough, then you can use it. We need use cases. We need use cases so that other people can see, oh, this is how Chris used it. Ah, now I get it. Because what happens often is people come to the site, they say, this is beautiful, it's amazing, it's incredibly well designed. And then they say, "That was I'm so proud of you, or it's so cool, thumbs up. But then they see somebody else use it for a purpose, like the ones you asked about. And then they say, oh, actually, I have a purpose. Like, even if it's deciding what to plant in my garden, but we need more stories of applications mm -hmm. to help it become more contagious, to help it become more accessible. We've made it as accessible as we think we can, we're happy to find ways to improve it, but we most need from other people is to participate. So, mm -hmm. so do stuff with our maps, do stuff with our content or give us feedback about it, but about how you bring it into a classroom, how you bring it into some setting, how it was part of a discussion in your city hall. You know, you can take snapshots of the maps and send them to your, your mayor and say, hey, are we ready for this? Mm -hmm. Those kinds of applications we would love to see. And we're just happy to host them and say, look, here's a gallery of applications people have made so that other people would say, yeah, that's like me. I, I can relate to that. I can know how to get started with that. I'd, I'd like to make it a more pointed ask, which is I'd like the audience to go on to probablefutures.org, look through the site, and then think about the people in your life, including yourself, who are creating, who are doing, where the asset of climate it must be a factor in their development. So whether it's somebody building a power plant or somebody planting a garden, those are both creators <laughs> that need to understand the asset and how how the asset, the vulnerability of the asset, the best utilization of the asset, et cetera. So that's my ask of everybody listening today is do something. And 
Spencer, thank you for doing what you are doing and Allison and the entire team at Probably Futures and, and everybody at Woodwell. And, you know, it takes a village to solve the problems of the village. And you guys are doing an amazing job leading the way. And I'm grateful for you as a human, man. Really, really impressive. All right. Well, it's great to spend time. And thanks to everybody who listened. And we hope to hear from you. Thanks for listening today. Wherever you are as a leader on your transformation journey, you'll find more helpful resources at chriscolbert.com. From more podcast episodes and my film talks from around the globe to my blog and books. And if you're a CEO or leader interested in getting my advice, you can reach me there too. Just head over to chriscolbert.com. Thanks for listening.